podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Oh, the shark bait has such teeth, dear, and it shows them pearly white. Just a jackknife has old Maggie Heath, babe, and it keeps it up. So welcome everybody to another episode of Macklin's Take. Me, Andy Clark, down in London, Matt Macklin up in Birmingham. And this is episode two in our Make or Break series, which we kicked off last week. And in case you didn't catch that one, the idea of Make or Break is to talk to fighters about pivotal fights in their careers. Not necessarily, though, the fights that would be regarded by many as their biggest fights. Not necessarily the ones that were for world titles or the biggest titles, for the biggest purses, uh, on the biggest stages. But what they were, were victories that had they not got them, then things could have turned out very differently. Uh, and last week we started this with the make or break king, which was Anthony Crawler, uh, who had three or four of these types of fights exactly. And with Anthony... Generally speaking, these big tests against the likes of Andy Morris, um, against Gavin Reese, against Kieran Farrell, an early one against Michael Brody too. Generally, they were he came into those off the back of a damaging defeat, and he was looking to prove that he was of a certain level to keep his career going forward. Today's guest, the circumstances for him were slightly different, but. Nevertheless, it was a big, big, pivotal fight in his career. Had he lost it, then it wouldn't have been over, but it would have been a setback. Uh, and the man we got on today is Spencer Oliver. Spencer, how are you? Yeah, really good, guys. Yourselves? Yeah, very well, thanks. Very well, very well. Thanks for joining us. And I'll just, I'll just outline the fight that we're going to talk about. So it's Spencer's fight for the vacant Southern Area title in February 1997, Tuesday the 18th of February to be exact, uh, in Cheshire and in Hertfordshire. And it was for the vacant Southern Area Super Bantamweight title, as I say, against Patrick Mullins. Uh, so Spencer at that point was 9-0, and Patrick was 10-0. and And for both of them, this was their first real test. They both had similar opposition up to that point. Spencer, I think you'd boxed Peter Buckley once. I think Patrick had boxed him three times. It was learning fights and that was the way to go. That was that was absolutely correct. But this was on a Sky card. Uh, so it was televised. Uh, I think it was the first time that, that either of you had, had had that kind of spotlight uh, thrust upon you. Um, you were both ABA champions as, as amateurs. You picked up a silver medal at the Commonwealth Games as well. And this was very much set up to be one of those fights where the winner would go on to bigger and better things. That was the idea. Uh, and for the loser, where well, you would have to restock and just take a good look at where at where you were and where you could go from there. So just, just, just tell us about how this came about, first of all, how the match was made and, and just what happened with it all in the background. Yeah, I mean, me and Patrick, we went back a long way. So when I was junior ABA champion, Patrick was senior ABA champion, so he had a few years on me, and we used to spar a lot because we were from the same area, so we sparred many times before, and Patrick used to always get the better of me in sparring, because he had that, it was like man against boy thing, and, and he was just so strong, he was an awkward southpaw, so going into the fight, I was being hyped up, and we both, we had, both had good, we both had great amateur careers, uh, both turned pro, we were running parallel with each other both getting the wins, we was racking up quick wins, and we was both being fast-tracked. So when we went first went into the fight, or when the, first, the fight was first made, I knew it was going to be a tough fight. The Boxing News and, and various other um, journalists sort of thought that I would win the fight and win it quite comfortably, possibly inside the distance. But obviously Patrick knew different, I knew different, because we had had that history before in, in the gyms. Um, so I knew it was going to be a tough fight, but that, that sort of motivated me even more, if I'm honest. It was a fight that I knew that I had to win, and you're right, the, the, the loser was going to be a setback, but Patrick went on to have a great career himself. You know, he went on to win British IBO titles, and um, yeah, he'd he done very well for himself, but I knew that a, a loss would be a big setback, and, and I wasn't prepared for that. I sort of put everything into it. Um, I, I got the opportunity, and... Yeah, it turned out a great fight, a tough fight, but a great fight. It's quite um, different, really, to uh, Crawler's one, but, but, but it does definitely fit in this category because 
remember spent, I, was, you know, I was at how old was I back then I was probably 14 still, still boxing the school boys and you know, I was at that stage where you'd read the boxing news cover to cover you know what I mean I could tell you it all knew who everyone was and I remember you were coming through and you were like real sort of TV friendly fire you were exciting you had a character and uh, you were really being built up as the next big thing so had you lost for the southern area by no means would have been the end of your career, but it suddenly would have burst your bubble a little bit in, in terms of where you were going. You were moving on at such a fast rate. And um, whereas Anthony Queller, obviously, in terms of where we picked up on him when he was coming back after Gary Sykes, losing a, a final eliminator and getting his, his contract back, or Frank Warren, I think it was, and leaving and Anthony Farnell saying he couldn't train him. He was very much sort of fighting for his career. But I, I, I know where you, you were at because... In a similar situation, I obviously took the Andrew Facey fight. You know, it was a step up, it was a 10-rounder. And, you know, I didn't get the decision. I thought I should have got it, but whatever, I didn't. And it was a step back. And I think had you, where you were going at that point, you were like really being billed as the next big thing, weren't you? You were really kind of making big moves. And if you'd have lost at the Southern Area level, you know, it'd have been a real kick in the balls, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely, Matt. You know, um, it was one of those fights. Like you say, I was being fast-tracked. I was TV-friendly, Sky was sort of pushing to get behind me as well. And it was a fight that I needed to win. And I knew that. I knew there was a lot on the line. Although it was only a Southern Area title, I knew what it meant. I mean, I went on, after I beat Patrick Mullins, I, I, in my very next fight, I won the European title. And Patrick boxed on the undercard in the sixth rounder. That was the that was what was on the line, really, if I'm honest. And um, I always knew it was going to be a tough fight, Matt. But I knew it was something that, if I'd lost, it was going to be massively damaging. You know, not just because I'd lost my first fight, but because of the hype that was being put behind me. And I think that if I would have lost that fight, it would have showed the level that you was at. And there would have been a lot of question marks on, on how far I could, I could have gone or how far I would have gone. You know, it was one, it was one of those ones. It was a must win fight, although it was early in my career and it was, it was for a Southern area title. It was a fight that I knew I had to win or it could have been, it would have taken me a long, long time to sort of bounce back. It would have, it would have set me back a couple of years. Yeah, and I suppose it was, if you, you look, you know, Mullins was obviously a prospect as well. He, he lost, but he came back and had a great career, like you said earlier. But uh, I suppose up to that point as well, you, you both of you had probably fought very much, you know, hand-picked opponents, guys that you were definitely meant to beat. So this was probably both of your first real fight as a professional where you're fighting the other guys coming to win just as much as you had. Do, do you know what I mean? We, we've all got yeah. journeyman early doors, you know, or, you know, some, I'm not saying they've come to lose, but, you know, they know they're the B-side, you're the promoter, you know, you're, you're supposed mm. to win the fight, where this was kind of two guys very much at a similar stage in their career, both undefeated, both, you know, really want to win this fight. No, neither knows what defeat looks like. And it's a, a new, it's not, when I say it's unusual, it's not always the norm that you get two guys that have got you know, still in early doors in their career, both talented, both got a lot of ambition and are thrown in, you know, even before British title level. That's, that's kind of where we're coming from. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, that fight should never have happened for a Southern Area title anyway. And that's no disrespect to the Southern Area title, but the fight was bigger than that. You know, the, you know, we both proved that because we both went on and had great careers. We both won titles straight after that. I won the European title straight after that. He, I think he had one fight and then won the British title. It was like... It was that sort of, so the, the, the magnitude of the fight, the, the title didn't really tell the story of it. It was a fight that was, and we were both under the, promote, the same promotional banner as well. So I knew there was a lot of pressure because obviously the winner was going to get the opportunities and the loser was going to have to go back to the drawing board and, re and rebuild a little bit. Um, yeah, so we was, it, it was, yeah, it was one of those fights that, that stands out for me in my career, if I'm honest. That was... That probably meant more to me, that fight, that victory in that fight, than any other fight that I'd done, any other fight that I'd won, because of what was on the line and because I knew Patrick personally and we was from the same area. It would have, it would have been damaging, you know, and, and what I had on the line. So, yeah, it, that was the most important fight of my life. Well, that's exactly why we picked it out, because these are the ones that, that, that get us interested. These are the really interesting ones where, as you say, people look at the European title win and the European title defences and and they would obviously appear to be your biggest fights. But if you hadn't won this one, then who knows what might have happened. It was interesting to hear you say that your careers had kind of run in parallel lines and that you were both with the same promoter. Jess Harding was, was your guy, wasn't he? Frank Maloney yeah. was, was, was with Patrick. So how, at what point 
did you know that this fight was was coming? Was it kind of built up to? Was it understood by the pair of you that this that this was going to happen, or did it just kind of materialise? Because obviously, at this point as well, um, a month after this fight, Michael Brody fought Neil Swain for the vacant British title. Uh, so that fight was made, and then that wasn't a possibility for you. But so, do you see what I mean? How did this? Did it just appear out of thin air, or did you know? Now, we, we sort of knew it was going to happen because, like you said, Patrick Mullins was with Frank Maloney. Jess Hardy was working with Frank Maloney because Frank had the TV at the time. Um, it was a fight that we talked about a lot. We had history anyway, and it was a fight we knew was going to happen. You know, like me and Patrick used to be, you know, we were we were quite pally back in the day. You know, I used to even see him out in pubs and clubs and whatever. So he was someone that I knew personally, but we knew it was going to happen. It was, it was obvious, you know, because he was a top prospect coming through. I was a top prospect coming through. It had, it had to happen. You know, I didn't think it would happen as early as it did, as in for the Southern Area title. I think we both got nominated to box for the Southern Area title. It was a vacant title, and that's how it happened. I think that um, it, was, it was an easy fight to make. We both wanted it. Patrick was supremely confident. It was a fight that I wanted because I knew it would kick, push me on. Um, and then, obviously, you know, like the likes of Michael Brody and all that were, were, were fights that were talked about. It was a fight, really, that I wish it happened but never did. You know, it was a fight that I think the public always wanted to see as well. But we sort of took slightly different paths. Michael won the British title, I won the European title, and it never happened. But yeah, I think that the Mullins one was, was, was the important one. In terms of the fact that you knew each other, and, and as you said there, you were quite pally, does that, what kind of an impact does, does, does that have? What kind of difference does that make? Does it make things more difficult because presumably in the amateurs quite regularly you would box people that you that you knew and you would box the same person uh, a number of times that, that that would happen to some people during the course of an amateur career but pro boxing obviously it's a different kind of focus uh, a different kind of ethos it's a lot a lot more ruthless a lot more a lot more cutthroat was it was it difficult at all to have somebody you you know you liked in the opposite corner no not at all I mean Matt you, you'll be out of bounds with me on this one it's like you know, boxing's a business, and it's like, you know, you, you could be sparring your brother, and when the first bell goes, you'll go and knock, you know, 10 bells out of each other. It's the way it is. It's like, you know, boxing's that sort of sport. It's crazy. It's like you, a switch gets switched on, and you go out there and you do your stuff. So me boxing Patrick was, no, there was no problem in that at all. There was no problem in that at all. Like, I was happy to do it. I was, you know, it didn't sort of affect the way that I felt about it, because the end of the day, I was looking at a guy in the opposite corner and he was trying to stand in the way of what I was trying to work for, for my future, for my family. And so it was a job that I had to get done. You know, so I think the friendship thing goes out the window then. It, it becomes a business. Hey, hey, ki- hey, kids. Hey, everybody. Sitting here with a famous Slovenian philosopher. How are you doing, sir? I am uh, in health, thank you. Are you uh, excited about something? I am excited about this latest uh, CIA-funded venture. A CIA venture? Yes. It's called The Desire and Capital Podcast. Oh, what is it about? I refuse your fascist question. Well, there you have it. Listen to The Desire and Capital Podcast, coming soon to a bourgeois platform near you. On your marks, get set, go! And in terms of the the kind of media scrutiny and interest around the fight, I just wonder how how that was because, as you said, you know, Sky seemed keen on you. People were looking to get behind you. You, you were young. You were exciting. Uh, you had that good amateur pedigree. Uh, the Commonwealth Games silver medal. But when you step up to that kind of platform, basically, uh, and all of a sudden you're in more demand for interviews and there are more cameras around and, and it just dawns on you that it is if you didn't already know that that this is this is something else, this is something new, something different. Is did you did you enjoy all of that side of it or did you did you just kind of tolerate it? Was it something that you would rather not have done? Andy, um it's quite a simple question for me that one, mate. I absolutely loved it. It's like I think it's one of those things that people sort of either shy away from that side of thing. I think that was half the thing that, you know, used to used to push me on. I, I used to thrive on that. I used to love being in front of the cameras. I enjoyed the fights being in front of the cameras. I loved people walking down the road and, and, and respecting what you'd done, what you'd worked for all your life, and people, you know, starting to appreciate, 
you know, your talents are getting shown on air and stuff like that. No, that, that side of it was something like I absolutely thrived on. I loved it. That sort of pushed me on even more. Spencer, you said, um, you mentioned there about, you know, asthmatic. It was having someone who you're friendly with in the opposite corner. Mm. Doesn't, you know, doesn't make it any, doesn't make it difficult to have a hard fight. And, you know, when I fought Jamie Moore, and, and I'll come on to the, the actual question, but when I fought Jamie Moore, me and Jamie weren't enemies at all. We were friendly. Yeah. We weren't friends. We didn't ring each other. But we were definitely friendly. Like, if we seen each other at a press conference to mm. another fight or something, we would speak without a doubt. We'd chat for a good bit. So we were, there was certainly no animosity there whatsoever. Yeah, you know, sure. we fought each other. We'd have to absolute 10 miles of shit out of each other. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. But, but the question, and I suppose this is because I was thinking back about that, when you got maybe think that about the, the Moore fight, I remember training for the fight. Now, obviously, I was from Manchester or Salford. I'm from Birmingham, but I was training in Manchester. I'd been up there for a while. Jamie was from Salford. Billy Graham was from Salford. Uh, Jamie had sparred with Ricky several times. They were, you know, they were very friendly with each other. So, you know, Manchester had, a, you know, a few other gyms that were bubbling at the time. Um, I think Anthony Farnell, and maybe a couple other trainers, and you know. Uh, uh, Collier Boston, that they had a gym. So when me and Jamie were, when I was mandatory challenger and the fight was up, was on, you know, there was a lot of talk around the town. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I'm guessing when you fought Patrick Mullins, you'd have known each other. You'd have both trained in similar gyms, sparred similar people. Was what was the talk like? Do you remember what the kind of gym talk was around that time? Oh, it was unbelievable, mate. I remember it so clearly. And we, we sort of knew some of the same people in the same circles. So, you know, there was a lot of talk and a lot of buzz. And, and, and it was pretty much a 50-50 split. You know, some people, a lot of people felt that Patrick was going to win, you know, and a lot of people felt that I was going to win. But, yeah, there was a real buzz around town because, obviously, we both built up reputations. We've both been, you know, building our careers really well. And it was an exciting fight. They knew that Styles made fights. I was someone that used to love to come forward, love to have a fight. Patrick had... Patrick was the same. He had flashy combinations. It was always going to be a classic fight. I think it was always a fight that people wanted to see. So, yeah, I mean, locally, like you say, you had with Jamie Moore. Locally, mate, it was it was really talked about. There was a there was a real buzz about the place. Yeah, and, and that's why again that was so much so important for me. I, I worked really well with Addy Pressure when I knew that I had to pull it on. You know, when I knew I had to perform, it, it sort of made me it made me perform better. So that's what I was saying to you, Andy, about the fact that you know I used to like all that because I knew that brought pressure, and pressure brought the best out of me. What kind of feeling did you get about him in that regard? Because the the interesting thing about knowing your opponent and and knowing what they're like as a person, as you said, that the fact that there was a friendship there made no difference when the bell went, but it does mean that you can try and second guess a little bit what might be in their, in their mind. Did you think that he would handle it as well as you? Was he as kind of born to that stage as you were? Because that does, I mean, it does make a difference. You see fighters when they step up a, a level onto a bigger platform, you see them, you know, you see them freeze a little bit sometimes. Some some people really embrace it, and others kind of shrink away from it. What was your what were your thoughts on on, on how he'd respond? Oh, I, listen, I knew I knew because Patrick knew the history of us in the gym, and he used to always do well when we were sparring because I was a lot younger. You know, they were great spars, but Patrick used to do well when we were sparring. So I knew he was supremely confident, and I think it really pissed him off that I was the one getting all the attention. And Patrick knew that it was his big opportunity, but he was going in there supremely confident and he knew it was his big opportunity. Patrick was known for not really training. He was not, like, he was very, very, very talented, but he didn't train like I did. Patrick was known to be lazy, so sometimes he under underperformed. But for that fight, he trained his arse off. He'd done everything that he could do. He was working with Dean Powell at the time. Dean put him through and said he's never been in that sort of condition before because he knew what was on the line because of this this local rivalry, etc. But and the fact that he was so pissed off. I was the one that was getting all the hype and he thought he couldn't work it out because obviously he thought he was the better fighter. So yeah, no, I think he was he he was um yeah, he was sort of he was buzzing for the fight because he, he thought he was gonna get victory. Was there anyone whose opinion you would have really valued in and around the London scene at that time, Spencer, who you heard was picking Patrick over you? And how well, did that I think, make you feel? Yeah, I think that 
I knew, well, I knew Frank Maloney was tipping uh, Patrick big time because, like, Jess was obviously my promoter. Frank was his promoter, but we was working alongside Frank because it was uh, it was a Sky TV show and, and that's that sort of deal. But, but uh, he was really Frank's boy, do you know what I mean? So, and Frank was supremely confident. They thought he was going to kick my ass, but, you know, obviously I had different ideas. But, yeah, that was, that was one that always stands out for me because I knew that, like, Frank always believed that he was going to win the fight. And I could see Frank screaming in his corner. And really, Frank was meant to be a neutral. But they fancied, they fancied Patrick in that fight. Was there anyone, though, that would have, say, been neutral, that would have sparred both of you? Or maybe someone that would have trained alongside him, that also trained alongside you, that you were friendly with, who you would have kind of, you know, tried to get the inside track on and, and say, you know, how did you see the fight going? Or had you heard of someone like that that was picking him to beat you. No, I, I, like, like trying to think back to names and that is, um, I can't really remember. I just remember the general buzz was Matt that it was like, you know, a lot of people were picking him and a lot of people were picking me. It was, it was a real divide. Um, I can't pick out any individual people because I can't sort of re- really remember now. But I remember at the time because I obviously remember the build up to the fight, etc. And, and there was a lot of people tip, tipping Pat. A lot of people in our industry, our peers. You know, not just um, not just the commentators and pundits or whatever, but get the people from the gym, people in the gyms that inspired both of us. I think there was a, I think there was a, a pretty equal divide at the time. A bit like, I mean, very similar, I suppose, then to me and Jamie Moore at the time, because that was pretty much split down the middle. There was a yeah. lot of people who, you know, you'd speak to and that. But I suppose there was a lot of people that were friendly with Jamie. They were also friendly with me, and they rated Jamie. Mm. It also Right with me, and they probably didn't want to be quoted on who they thought was going to win. But you also, you always got a feeling. Well, I certainly got a feeling of who who they felt, who they kind of was leaning towards. Yeah, I mean, our fights were very similar, actually, as in what was on the line for, for you know at the time and for the local rivalry. Although you was from Birmingham, he was from Manchester. We, were, you, you two guys were were being built up, and everyone knew stylistically it was going to be a great fight. And me and Patrick. Were, Patrick were exactly the same from my this match. So I, I get that you understand, you know, the whole build-up to this, what was on the line, what it was all about, this 50-50 divide. And you knew some people, and you knew some people, people that you sparred with, that had been sparring with him a couple of weeks before or whatever, and they go, yeah, yeah, you're too much for him, you're too strong. But you know they were bullshitting. Because you know that they're just saying that, and they probably said the same to him. Do you know what I mean? It was, it yeah, was but that, that's what I'm kind of getting at. Was there anyone who, who in particular who you remember, you know, that was kind of big for him? But, but you know what I mean? And you thought, oh, Yeah, I can't really remember, mate, if I'm honest. It's like fucking... I really can't remember now. I, I sort of um, obviously clearly remember the fight at the time. I remember the build-up to the fight and everything else. But I can't really pick out any individual that was sort of, um, yeah, would say anything like that. So how about the night itself then? Because it would appear from looking at the weights on on box record, I, and I, I watched the fight at the time, but I wasn't privy to the build-up of it, really. It would appear that you both made weight quite easily. He came in two and a half pounds under, you came in one and a half pound under, so it doesn't look like there were any particular particular dramas there. But time stand, uh, tends to stand still a bit during during fight week. So how did you, mentally, how was it? From from the way in onwards, you know, just filling that time, killing that time with with the clock ticking. Well, it was it, that was tough. Like so, what I done was I, I remember it clearly. After we had the weigh in, I went to play table tennis with Jess in the arena that we was boxing in because it was in a sports sports leisure centre now. And I went there because I wanted to get a feel for the arena and everything else. Listen, I I knew that I was in for a hard fight. I didn't give a shit what anyone was saying. Like. I, I, I was not one for listening to people talk and for people's predictions, etc. because I knew what I was in for because we both sparred probably 100 rounds together. So I knew it was going to be tough. So I, I needed to get everything right. I needed preparation right. Matt, you'll probably understand this as well. So I, we went to, the, went to the venue the night before, went into the hall. This is where it's all going to happen. And I had a walk around there and I got a feel for it. Then we saw a table tennis table in there, me and Jess. We got the table tennis table out. We had a little game of table tennis in there and all that. I just wanted to get familiar with the surroundings. Um, yeah, so that's what I'd done. That's what I'd done just to kill the time. But there was a lot of pressure on at that time, Andy. There really was because of what was on the line. And um, 
and it was all about killing time. It's like, there's nothing worse. And once you've done that weight, all you want to do, and again, Matt will understand this, all you want to do is just get in the ring. So that last 24 hours can be like, you know, it can be painful, especially when you've got a fight like that on where you know you're going into a hard fight. You know, you know your opponent, you know their, you know their strengths, you know their weaknesses, you know, you know what they bring to the table. So yeah, it's just that that last 24 hours was never never nice. I, did, I didn't enjoy that. I just wanted to get it on. It was all about refueling, restocking. Yeah, we both come in light at the weight, but actually we were both always tight at the weight. Super bantam weight was always a struggle for me, and I knew it was for Patrick, even though he was small, he was quite stocky. Um, so yeah, it was it was um, just yeah, scales. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, mate. I think they was, actually, because we did come in remarkably light. I'd never weighed eight stone nine before. And I think he weighed in at eight stone eight and a half. Or something, and, and that was bullshit as well. So I'm sure, you know, when you get, you, like, you know you're tight. Cause I think I've been down the gym on the morning of the weigh-in and weighed like eight stone ten or something. And you think that's all right, because by the time the weigh-in comes, the weigh-in's at six o'clock at night then. I thought, well, by the time the weigh-in comes, I'll be all right. I'll be on it. I'll be. I'll stay under it. I might be just a touch over eight stone ten. When I got in the scales and it said eight, eight and a half, that's exactly what I thought, Matt. Fuck me, these scales are dodgy. It happened to me when I fought Sergio Martinez. I checked, I checked my uh, weight before I left there. I took the weight off, like four pounds or something. Checked them on the scales. Checked them on the other scales. You know what I mean? Like I'm always like make sure I've got the calibrated ones on the other one. And it was like I was bang on the weight. Like literally, like a couple of ounces underneath. Anyway, I'm coming in, I weigh in, like 11 stone, uh, well, it's 8 pounds, I was 158, I think, and Sergio Martinez was one, was even lighter than that, like 157 <laughs> and a half. And, but then the guys in the, in the, in the co-feature, who were super middleweight, they both came, or like heavyweight, I think, they both came in two pounds under their weight. Wow. <laughs> yeah. The sales are obviously two pounds light. Yeah, crazy, crazy. I remember, I remember once when I boxed, it was a boxing. I think it was after one of European titles. I was boxing a guy called um, Serge Poblan. And on the undercard of it, it was my first European title fight. My, on the undercard was a heavyweight called Delko Mavovic. Do you remember him? The guy that used to have the Mohican. Yes. Yes, I do. So, and the same Lewis, thing happened. Lennox Lewis. He fought Lennox Lewis, yeah. But on, it, he fought Lennox the, the fight after that. Well, anyway, a similar thing happened. Delko got on the scales. And when they raised their arms up and everyone was screaming, I forget who he was boxing now, but it was for a European title. And he punched the air. As he'd done it, he knocked the scales and the scales went over. And again, then when I got on the scales, then we'd come in light, like eight stone eight or something. I knew what was tight in the way. It was like mad. <laughs> yeah. I, I did laugh that time in New York. It was on the way and obviously and everyone's coming two pound light. And I thought, well, nobody's yeah. moaning because everyone's come under the weight. But if it was two pound <laughs> heavier, that'd have been absolute murder with the place. Yeah, I think you start. You, I, I think you then start thinking, shit, I could have had a fucking bit of drink. Or I could have had a little sack of wheat. Yeah, exactly. yeah, I'm just yeah. looking at that. I'm looking at that card now, and um, yeah, Zelko Mavrovic, um, as you said, European heavyweight title fight. He won it, uh, and your fight. Yeah, you weighed in 120. You weighed in, so you weighed in eight stone eight, bang on the mark, and. Well, it's better the scales being two pounds light than um, the other way, isn't yeah, it? No, yeah, but I, that's what I'm saying. They come in two pounds lighter, but I know I weren't two pounds lighter. That's the point. But that was because Delco had just knocked the scales over because someone had been, was chanting his name or doing something, and he was all, he was like a bit of a nutter anyway, and he punched, and the scales went everywhere. So um, it was, yeah, it was when I got on of eight stone eight again. I was like, wow. I guess it's a bit, it's a bit different. Too. I, I'd forgotten, actually, that the weigh-ins then were in the evening rather than at lunchtime. And it just gives you that, that five was... or six more hours that you've got to just, you've just got to be disciplined. I mean, that's, that, but that's a long time, you know. That, that gives it quite mate. a different dynamic to the one we see now. Oh, mate, I'm so glad, Andy, you brought that up because the weigh-ins were then at six o'clock at night. And you'd like, it, you don't even know how much of a struggle it was for me to make eight stone ten anyway. And I'd go down the gym in the morning after now remember i've been training the night before to sweat everything off we wouldn't be able to eat because that's the way it was then you thought you know the nutrition and stuff wasn't around so you train have something very tiny to eat or something go to bed wake up in the morning be like eight stone ten and a quarter or something you think right i've got all day now strike but then you wouldn't eat or drink all day it was horrendous like waiting in at six o'clock at night for me was not a good thing because i was obviously so tight at the weight um, yeah, it was tough, man, really tough. 
So let's go to the night itself then. You, you, you get to the arena at, at what kind of time? You had a couple of fights uh, above you. There's another Southern Area super lightweight title fight. Uh, and then Paul Lloyd yeah. was up at the up at the top of the bill. So what kind of, just, just take us through, what kind of time did you get there? Uh, and and, and how, I mean, how did you kill the time on the day of the fight as well? Because I guess this is a very well-worn route for you because it's a, it's a big kind of boxing family, literally. Um, yeah. that you were from yeah. and that you were still in and, and routines were probably very um, very well established for when you were a kid, I guess. Yeah, listen, so I used to wake up in the morning to give you the rundown of what I used to would do in a day of the fight. It was always pretty much the same routine because if, if it weren't broke, you wouldn't fix it. So I used to get up in the morning, have my breakfast, then I'd go for a long walk. Um, I'd meet up with my trainer, I'd meet up with Jess, we'd go for a walk. Just have a chat about what you know the fight, how it was going to go, what we're going to do, game plans, etc. Then I'd come home, have a little bit of lunch, um, and yeah, and then just chill out, try and have a rest. Never did sleep, but always try to go up and have a little lie down. But you're obviously going through everything, going through your mind, and blah blah blah. And then yeah, just, then it would just be about getting prepared to go to the venue. I used to get there around, I don't know, if the fights were on then. I think they were on about. It started about eight o'clock. I was boxing about 10, so I would leave mine, which my house wasn't too far from there anyway. I would have probably got there about 8 o'clock, um, you know, just got in the dressing rooms and, and just prepared like you normally do. Get in there, have a little chill out, go and have a look at the venue, see what it's looking like, see what the crowd's like, get a little feel for it. And, um, yeah, and that was it. And the rest was just sitting in the dressing room, obviously getting your hands done up, going through, just going through the tactics, what was going to happen, um, you know, what you thought was going to happen. And, and that was it, really. I always loved your ring walk. I thought it was great. I thought I thought the omen was absolutely terrific. And um, we'll have a little bit of time left over when we finish talking about this fight because there's a few other things I want to ask you. One is uh, uh, one is where where that all all came from. But just to stick to this this fight just for for a bit longer, I watched it back yesterday, and um, the one thing that struck me was that well, obviously neither of you had been scheduled for ten rounds before. You hadn't been beyond six. Patrick hadn't been beyond beyond eight but when the first bell went he jumped on you immediately um I mean were you expecting that no he come out he come at me like a steam train like no one's ever started a fight in any weight division as fast as Patrick started that night the guy <laughs> went mad he come out and he threw punches and no one weren't expecting it it was good it was clever of him because it sort of it worked because I didn't expect it but what that done was, it was like it was like an alarm bell for me. It was like an alarm switch. Won't you won't. Yeah, as soon as he done that, it woke me up and I thought, right, let's fucking have it, let's go. I'm ready. Because, like, I always had that in my mind. My, my game plan for this fight was, this, this was my game plan for this fight. I knew it was going to be a war because we knew each other. I knew he was, a, he was an awkward southpaw with a, with a massive right, um, right uppercut. Right, so I straight away knew like my game plan was if he hits me with two, I'm going to hit him with three. If he hits me with three, I'm going to hit him with four. Because I knew that I could break him. Because I knew I was mentally stronger than Patrick. I knew that I was like better conditioned than Patrick. So that was the game plan. I thought as soon as he hits me, I'm going to hit him back. As soon as it, and I knew that we were going to meet each other head on. So as soon as he done that, I was like, right, let's go for it, bang. And that was that was that was all I was thinking. Every time he hit me, if he hit me with a one-two hook, I'd hit him to I'd hit him with a one-two hook cross. It was like that. And I knew that I'd break him in the end. And, and thankfully it did. There was only, I don't know, 30-odd seconds left of the, of the round or something. But I got him in the end. What was interesting too, watching it back, was that the first five or six rounds, there was still the half points uh, in operation there on, on the scoring. That's right. Uh, back in those days. And, and Glenn was commentating <laughs> with, uh, with Darkie, with Ian Darkin. Glenn, was, yeah. Glenn was, was basically saying, these are competitive rounds, but he was giving you pretty much... Everything, but then in round seven, uh, and that's uncharted territory for both uh, for you. He'd, he'd done eight up until that point, but but never in this kind of fight where the nervous energy is going to be the same and the and the tempo is the same. In round seven, I think he knew at that point I've got to really try and make my mark here and put a dent in him and try and I've got to start winning some rounds. Um, and he came at you in that round, and you know he he did he did have some success, and that was the um, that was the point at which. You know, you had to really, literally stand your ground. I'm glad you. I'm glad you mentioned round seven actually, because you're right, Andy. Like, so I think for the first six rounds, I was maybe six up, maybe five one, something like that. I was, I was winning the rounds. Come, although they were really competitive rounds, really exciting rounds. I was, I knew that I was winning the rounds, 
round seven come, which was new territory for me. So now your mind starts kicking in right. I'm on the home stretch there. And he hit me with, he was a southpaw, but he hit me with a, I think he hit me with a right hook. Because he was like, although he was a southpaw, he was actually an orthodox, Patrick Mullins. So he was, he switched, he was taught as a southpaw, but actually he was right-handed. So he hit me with a right hook. And it fucking rocked me down to the soles of my boots. You know when you get that <laughs> ringing, Matt, you know when you get that ringing noise when it goes like, like, like someone's ringing a bell in your head or something. And I, and I sort of went back to the ropes. Obviously, Patrick had sensed that he'd tagged me. And I just needed to regroup and get myself back together. But yeah, it was one of those, one of those moments where I was inexperienced with that as well. And, and, and done that happened to me before. But that sort of, again, just kicked me on. Once I recovered, I kicked on. And, and I think I finished the round all right. But that was the first round that Patrick won, I think. And I think that it also took a lot out of him as well. Because yeah, I went back to the... Yeah, go on. No, go on, mate. So I was going to say, they're the fights, though, when you, you could through, cook through the adversity. You know, a, a real fight where you go in, you've had, you know, you know what I mean, ebbs and flows, but you've, you've got the head starting and you're winning the rounds. Then he comes out, tries to make a statement in the rounds, tries mm. to change things around, maybe break your spirit a little bit, catches you with a big shot. Then you come back, you know, blah, blah, blah. They're, they're the fights that when you wake up the morning after, you're a 20% better fighter. They're the fights 100%. that prepare you for the European title fights and all the other ones that come out. Yeah. Yeah, totally agree, mate. And, and you know, I, it, it did. It took me a lot, that fight. It took, it took me a hell of a lot. And it also gave me a massive load of um, confidence as well. Because after that seventh round, he whacked me, and I went back to the corner. It was the end of the seventh round for my trainer. And then I think I had a good eighth round. And I went back, and my trainer said, right, now do yourself a favor. Get on the back foot. Because I was pushing him all the time. We was meeting each other head on. He went, get on the back foot, break his heart, break his soul, because I was a good boxer. And so the, and then when I started moving around in round eight, that sort of got to him, because he couldn't get near me. And I kept moving, moving, moving. And I think that broke his spirit a little bit. Because he was obviously wanting to meet me head on. He, he found some success in round seven. And it sort of broke his spirit. And I felt him gassing. And that's why I sat on him. I picked up and cut him round 10. Um, and he gave it one last hurrah. Um, I, I, you know, I was totally, I was fine. And then I just tagged him with a few shots. And yeah, he was done. He was finished. But yeah, it was a great fight, man. But you're right, Matt. You do learn so much for them. And it sets you in good stead. Like I said, I boxed for the European title the next fight. Won that fight. Then I had a tough 12 rounder with... Serge Poblan in defence. Then I boxed Vincenzo Belcastro in another tough 12-rounder. But Patrick Mullins set me out for that. He gave me that, that platform to be able to move on to bigger and better things. Yeah, the emotions, the, the up and down of, the, of, a, of a championship distance fight where you're winning and then they come to, you know, they try and come back and, like you say, turn it around. Then he has his last hurrah. And it's understanding that and not panicking, staying calm in the madness, mm. even though they're really putting it on you. It's sort of thinking, right, I've just got to weather the storm here because I know this is, this is his last little bit here. Don't wilt. Just let him blow himself and then come back. And when you come back on him, then that breaks them. And it's not yeah. to break you, but it's not breaking yeah. you. They break themselves. And it's, it's that psychological warfare. And you know when you were saying there, Matt, when you say, right, let him, I'll have him, let him have one more little go and then that'll break him and then they'll jump on him again. Do you know what the, and do you know what the soul-destroying thing is? that when you're thinking that and you think the guy's ready to go and he comes back and he finds a second win from somewhere and he's still hanging in there and you think, fucking, what have I got to do to break this guy? I think they're all the experiences that he sets you up for. When you're boxing in those European titles, as you did as well, and you have those tough European title fights, you get those guys where you think, right, he's on his way out here, he's going. Then all of a sudden they find something from somewhere and then you have to push on again and then that might happen two or three times. Boxing is a crazy sport, man. It really is. When we watch these fights these days, Matt, and we're working on these fights, etc., and you look there, and you, but you know the moment of a fight when you're watching it. You know what they're going through. You know what they're feeling. Because we've both been there. We've both had those tough fights, man, where it's not been all one-way traffic. And you've had some, you know, question yourself during a fight. That's the beauty of the sport, man. It is, it's, a, it's a crazy sport. When I, when I look back at it and see some of these fights these days, um, you know, when we was watching Josh Taylor versus Progray, when we was working on that, and you're watching and you're appreciating what's going on in the fight because you're feeling it because you've been to those places before. Do you understand? It's like, it's mad, man. It's like, you know, I think that's why I love the sport so much. It's just, it's just, a, it's just a crazy sport. It really is. But the Patrick Mullins one was probably the fight in your career, which was early on. You were both still very much improving. Yeah. Nowhere near your peaks, either of you, where you were thrown in quite early into this kind of level of a fight with a lot on the line. 
And it, it's really, you have to learn those things on the job during that fight. Yeah, yeah, you do, mate. You do, that's what I'm saying. You learn those things. And it does, it stands you in good stead. And you take so much, at the time, you don't realise, but you take so much from the experience from those learning fights, from those early days, and fights where you have to question yourself. You know, you have that, you, you know, where it doesn't go all your own way. You have to overcome a cut or something like that. They're all the experiences you need to take you on to those bigger and better things. And it does, you're right, it, it sets you up on a much better platform. I think that improved me as a fighter. You said 20%, it may have even been more than that. You know, not just physically, but mentally as well. It took me to another place. That, that's, that's why I always pick that fight as my defining fight, because it took me to another place, like physically, mentally, and as a, as a fighter. Well, what always fascinates me about the championship distance, and people always talk about covering the championship distance and the first time somebody steps up to 10 rounds and 12 rounds and, uh, and, and everything that it means, is, is that it's not just about obviously having enough gas in your tank to be able to box at a good tempo in a competitive fight for 10 or 12 rounds. Difficult enough though that is. It's about plotting your way through it. It's about knowing, as you were just saying, knowing when to go and when to hold. And that judgment factor can be can be just so, so difficult for even the most experienced fighters. Because if it's someone you've not fought against before and you don't really know how they react to things necessarily, then you can still get that wrong when you're when you're very, very experienced. So it's, it's, it's just, it's just fascinating stuff to watch because it's like, um, you know, it's like a campaign, isn't it? The 10 or 12 round fight. It's not, it's not a sprint kind of battle. It's, it's, it, there, there's so many things yeah. that can happen during the course of it. And you've got the stoppage too. You've got the stoppage in the final round, which, which must've been really, you know, really pleasing. I, I think you were quite generous in the post-fight interview. You said that, you know, maybe the referee, Richie Davis, I think it was, could have let it go on. And, and Patrick yeah. himself said, oh, I think he could maybe have let it go on. But I think it was one of those stoppages where he he absolutely got to keep his pride because the referee stopped it. But I don't think he was too unhappy about it. Listen, at the time of the stoppage, when he'd gone through the ropes and I just missed him with a right hand that would have put him there still today, probably... Uh, I loaded up with it. I threw it from the back of the altar. I knew that he was he was just about to go. He was he was fine and happy with that because Patrick had nothing left then. He'd blown his he'd blown his gasket there. He he was finished and and he knew that at the time. But obviously he was going to talk about it afterwards because he was chasing the fight again. It was a fight that he wanted again because he knew that I was holding you know um, more valuable titles and that was something that he he wanted. He wanted that revenge, you know, and because we was local rivals as well. He wanted, he always wanted to chase the fight, but I was looking to move on and for bigger and better things. Why do I want to go over that again? That was like, fuck, you know, you don't want to do too many of those. So I was happy just to sort of move on and, and do it. And if there was more on the line, a better title on the line, then yeah, we could have gone for it. But our, tra- our, tra- uh, our career took sort of slightly different paths. But yeah, I think that, you know, Patrick, Patrick, although said after the fight that his fight shouldn't have been stopped, believe me, he, he'd had enough at that point. Hey everybody, this is Moto G Pete from the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast. Join us every week while we rate, review, ride, philosophize, and generally obsess over every single motorcycle make, model, and style that could possibly exist, plus news and racing. That's the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast from Moto One Podcast Network Studios. And you really did kick on from there as well. This this will be the subject for another one of these, probably a little bit further down the line. But I mentioned earlier on that Michael Brody was boxing Neil Swain the next month in March. Brody got the win there. But then in May, um, as you, you know, you're making your own plans. You weren't going to sit around and, and wait for the winner of that fight and see whether you might be able to get the winner. That's just three months later, after the fight against Patrick, you were you were winning a, a European title, uh, 20th of May. So just a, the anniversary was just a couple of days ago. 1997 yeah. and just quickly on that though that is a that's a hell of a leap to go from southern area although as you say the quality of that fight was probably yeah. above that level straight into european level was how did how oh. did how did that happen because was that did oh. you, do you think that gs knew that could be a possibility if you beat patrick or or did it you know what no it's funny how that story how that fight was made actually i was on holiday at the time um, I think I was on holiday. It was sort of like I'd, I'd gone on holiday just after the fight, just to get to let off a bit of steam and whatnot. And I got a phone call from Jeff saying, 
defence, fancy boxing for the European title. And I'm like, you, are you joking? He went, no, there's an opportunity come up. Because he's with Frank Maloney, he's like with Philip Fondue, who works with Frank Maloney. If Frank's offered us to fight, I think Frank was still pissed off that I beat Patrick. So he thought, right, I'm going to get him bumped off here. He said, yeah, I've got this kid, Martin Clesson. I've had a look at him, I don't fancy him that much. He just knocked out Salim Medjukun for the European title in one round. And Medjukun went on to win the WBA title, defended it numerous amount of times. He was a good fighter, but he flattened Medjukun in a round. And then I come home, had a look at the fight and went, yeah, I fancy that. It was, um, yeah, I think Martin Kresnev had had 31 and 129, drawn one, lost one or something. But it was a fight. You know, Matt, when you look at a fighter and you go, I weren't just going, oh, it's a European title shot. I want that. I looked at him and I'd see something and I went, I'll do it. He'll crumble him. And that's, and, you know, and that, that was it. I just, I had supreme confidence going in. I was a massive underdog in that fight as well. I think I was a seven to one underdog in that fight. Um, I bet 1,500 quid on myself. I won more money on the fight than I think than I got paid. I could think of an exact example of what a fight like that in my own career. I'd, I'd boxed in, I'd had two quick fights in America, one in Atlantic City, one in Philadelphia in 2005. I'd been inactive for about 11 months, and I come back. I, I, got, I got a fight on a Brian Peters show in Ireland. It, it was on a fight by fight basis uh, just for the Irish middleweight title. Being a guy called Michael Monaghan. Then a few, that was in the May. Then in the August, I fought in Atlantic City. Got a third round stoppage over, you know, a, a, just, a, a, I don't know, a kind of a. Six and six guy out in America. Then I fought um, another guy, a better opponent, I think six and two guy from Philadelphia, in Philadelphia, um, won the fight. So three little fights now in, in fairly quick succession, had nice momentum. I'd been in the gym for a year with Billy Graham. That looked I'd made loads of improvements, you know, sparring numerous rounds with Ricky Hat and Pauls for everyone. And anyway, I was in, you know, stayed over in America for the week after the fight, came back, you know, with the jet lag and everything. So I come back up into the gym into uh, Billy Graham and, and Ricky Hatton was fighting Carlos Mayer that on the two and a half weeks later. And I didn't even know it was going to be on the card. Billy said that he was going to try and get me on the card. Um, so there's any top he's needed fighters on the card. So anyway, I walk in the gym and um, Ed Robinson goes, You're on the, we need to do an interview. I said, I'm not sure I'm on the card yet. He said, you better be on the card. Otherwise, we're in trouble. With, you know, you're on the card. Not very good. He said something else, but I'm, I'm being polite. But anyway, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm, I'm uh, So anyway, but, but I, get a, I get a call, Billy. He says, look, I want you to fight this Russian kid. I said, oh, yeah, he's 17 and 1, uh, 12 knockouts. And I said, what happened to the, <laughs> what happened to the fucking eight rounds? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, like, nah, he said, it's got to be this guy. That guy who insists upon him. So anyway, his name was Alexei Chirkov. Um, yeah. And I didn't know this at the time, but so anyway, Brian Peters ended up uh, sending me a video of it. Now, Brian wanted to manage me since the uh, Michael Monaghan fight six months earlier. So he mm. stayed in regular touch and he sent me a video and he advised me not to take the fight. You shouldn't take that fight. He's only lost one. That was to Corin Gavor. He's a world class fighter. Um, you know, so he sent, that was the video he sent me and he lost some points over eight rounds to Gavor, who's a good for. Mm. Anyway, down in Sheffield on the Thursday, the Wayne's on the Friday, and the guy who I guess was fighting after that called Gihard Ayatovich, who was a top amateur, uh, and was like a, a Serb that no one wanted to fight, type thing, who needs him club. And he goes to me, Oh, you're fighting Gihard, aren't you? And I said, Oh, yeah, 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 that's right. Did you know him? He goes, Yeah, he was a uh, good amateur, world silver medalist, European gold medalist. And I thought, wow. shit myself a little bit, thinking, oh, Yeah, yeah come on, I'm only hearing this now. <laughs> Listen, back in the day, mate, when you was a world silver medalist and a European gold medalist, you could fucking fight. He's only lost one as a pro. To, I'm thinking, yeah. am I being fucking fixed up here? What's, how come Hobson was insisting on this guy with, you yeah. know, Hobson? And, you know, now I, I found out years after him and Fundu were pally, this was Fundu fighter. Anyway, I've I done the fight and I knocked the guy out in the first round. But. Yeah. You know, that was going, it was a bit like, you know, when you said, yeah. you, you know, when you said about that kid you were fighting. When, when Brian sent me the video of Chica, uh, I thought he's a good fighter, obviously good and all that. But I just, I just saw something. He's made for me. Yeah, he's still saying. He's made for me. He comes he's in. He's got it totally wrong, man. I, I was, Do you know what I mean? Swan, so good, so. Yeah. That, 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 I'm, I'm, when you said, yeah. that, you, you know, Jess Hardy said, I've got this fight, and you looked at him, you just fancied the fight. Yeah, yeah. Is that right? Yeah, just fan, just fan. 
totally fancied it, mate. I looked at him, and then I, so I looked at a couple of fights where he'd gone longer distances and he'd won and stopped the kid late. And then I looked at the European title fight, he boxed Medjuk Kuhn, who was, a, who, a, like, who was the European champion at the time and was highly fancied. And he boxed Medjuk Kuhn in his own backyard, and he hit Medjuk Kuhn with a straight right hand. You know them Eastern Europeans? They throw fucking right hand straight through the middle. They're, they're straighter than straight. And he hit him straight, <laughs> he hit him straight from the pipe. Like an like, and I'm not joking, mate. If you, if you want to, I, I don't know if it fights on YouTube. If you have a look at it. He fucking crumbles, um, uh, Medjugorje. He just drops like he's been, he drops like he's been shot. He's, he's mad. But I saw something in the fight before. I went, right, as long as I keep away from that right hand, I'm going to do this, Jesus. That's what as long as I stay away from the right hand, I'll do him. Like, I, knew that, I knew that he had that big right hand. But apart from that, I thought, he's fucking basic. And as you say, it was on to that, to that European title fight, which ultimately was a, a fantastic win at, at Pickett's Lock and, and things progressed from there. We'll, we'll get into that kind of, not quite second half, but, but later stages of your career uh, another time possibly. But th- there, are, there are a couple of things I am quite keen to ask you. And because fighters always love, love going back and having a, a chat about their early days, about their amateur days. And I did see a brilliant picture on social media that you put up a, a couple of weeks ago, probably, of your first amateur fight when you were a boy. Um, and it would appear that it took place in a, in a field that was, <laughs> that was a redirected in, in a field. Um, and, and there you were getting to it. So talk us through that one, because it, it, most it was, people now, that they, they wouldn't get it. Right, so I talk, I talk you through it. It's crazy, mate. And like when I got, when I found the picture, I was like, wow. It was in a place called Ware. And it's funny how you remember these things. And it was against a kid called Mark Wilkinson. Don't ask me how I can remember back to when I was like nine years of age, taking that fight. But it was against a kid called Mark Wilkinson. I was over, I think I was nine or ten years of age. It was 84 or 85. And, um, yeah, the ring was the ropes. And there was a fucking grass floor. There was no canvas. Or anything, and it's like it's just bizarre. And when I look at it, the referee was just dressed normal, and the kids were just hanging off the ropes. Mad man, like that's yeah. Our things have moved on, eh? Or is that just mean that I'm getting old? <laughs> well, I don't know. That that's the thing. Is like when I saw the photo, I thought, wow, that looks absolutely tremendous. You know that that you know, oh. excuse the pun, that is literally kind of grassroots stuff. But obviously, you were yeah. you were attached to a very well known um, amateur club. Um, you were from kind of like rich boxing lineage, if, if, if you like. It was in the family. Yeah. It was everywhere you looked. And mm. the fact that you, of all people, really, could end up having your first fight, you know, with the grass under your feet. In, the, in, 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 my, in my mind, I like to think that it was, you know, back like, like the old bare knuckle days where, uh, where fighting was illegal ah. and you had to go and do it in the middle of a field and make sure that the local, the local constabulary didn't, you know, didn't find out about it. It just, it just had, <laughs> that picture just had such a brilliant look to it. It really did. It did, mate. And I, I don't remember it clearly, man. It was just, it was just like a bright, sunny day. And it was, I've got fun, fun memories. I've done a couple of those like that. Um, yeah, it was good, man. I loved it. It really was. And it was like, did you notice there was no head guards back then? And it was just like, mad, mate. Yeah, there's no head guards. It was close to fairground stuff, really. Do you know, it was such a shame, Spencer and Andy, that both of you put Spencer, really. That never happened. Because I remember it was so much talked about. It was really, I know, really highly anticipated was you and Michael Brody clashing. I mean, yeah. I'm obviously a fan of both. But I remember... A good mate of mine, he was a massive Brody fan, and I was, I was more, I fancy Jews, you know what I mean? And yeah. we swore he'd have to crack, and we divided over it in the banter, but mm-hmm. that was a fight. That, I mean, you were just destined to meet at some point, you know. I've had you. I'm had so you gutted we never. Cut short. Yeah, I'm so gutted that we never, because we was destined to meet. Um, Jack Trickett, who was looking after Michael Brody at the time, again, was in talks with Jess. The fight was going to be made. He was British Commonwealth champion. I was European champion. We boxed them. We've defended our titles on the same bills before. It was a fight that we both wanted. You know, it was destined to happen. And it was a fight that could have easily been, easily been made. Stylistically, it would have been brilliant. Obviously, I really fancied the job. Brody did as well. And it was one of those fights that will go down as, you know, um, it, again, it will be a divide. A lot of people thought that I would have won. A lot of people felt he would have won. Um, it was a fight that I wanted. That's all I can say. I think that it was a fight that would have probably happened for a world title. Um, because we were both sort of... Like, Michael Brody was so unlucky he never won a world title. I think he, he, he drew for it two or three times, didn't he? Um, I think he was very unfortunate. He should have been a world champion, and I believe that 
that fight would have happened for a world title. I think I would have got to the world title before Michael, if I'm honest, because my career was slightly in front of his. He was sort of like just slightly behind the British Commonwealth at the time I was European. And yeah, it's one of those fights that never, never, never got across the line, but it's a fight that both of us, I know, wanted, and it would have been, it would have been a brilliant fight. Yo, I'm DK, co-host of the One Star Recruits podcast. My best friend Rip and I host five-star athletes, celebs, business leaders, comedians, and coaches from around the world. Each week, I can guarantee you the show will always have great laughs, catch up on life's in relatable ways, and have a ton of fun. We're recruiting you. We are the One Stars, which means we can ask the questions that no other podcast asks to guests like Joey Chestnut, Evander Holyfield, Bobby Hurley, Jenny Finch, Ryan Lochte, Montel Jordan, New guests every week, compelling interviews that you want to hear. Check us out wherever you get podcasts, One Star Recruits. And I'm curious as well, another another question about the amateur days. The Commonwealth Games in, in 1994 in, um, in Victoria in Australia, yeah, you would have been probably, yeah. what, 20 then? Um, and you got your, your silver medal. Oh, 19. Yeah, Young man getting to travel the world and got to the final, lost to Robbie Padden, who obviously went on to win world titles. Very, very good fighter, home fighter as well. What was it What was it like boxing for England, boxing internationally then? Because we, we, we've, we talked to, to Matt about this. We talked to Paul Smith about it at length the other week. And, and it's just, it, it was a different world, wasn't it? Yeah. Really, from how it, is, from how it is now. Yeah, definitely. I'm glad you asked that. I think that the, the, the kit that we wore when we went, we boxed for England in 94 in, in the Commonwealth Games, Victoria Island, um, out in Canada. And the kit that we got then was was donated to us by Nike or something. No, I think our tracksuit was green. We was boxing for England. The tracksuit was fucking green, believe it or not. It was like, yeah, it was like that. And then I always remember, you know what, it was such an honour for me because I was, I'd only turned pro. I turned pro when I, um, sorry, turned um, senior when I was 17, boxed in the ABAs when I was 18, won the ABAs, only boxed in the ABAs once, won it against all the odds against John McLean in the final, who was a, a well-respected guy, been around a long time, boxed John, um, John Lyons a couple of times, beat John Lyons. So I beat him, stopped him in two rounds, boxed in a multi-nation tournament, then got selected for the Commonwealth Games, Went out there and it was like, I remember doing the opening ceremony and walking around and just thinking, wow, man, this is like insane. 80,000 people in the opening ceremony doing the walk through your country just as a young kid. Yeah, it was just, it was mind-blowing, if I'm honest. Um, and obviously, yeah, I picked up that silver medal, lost to Robbie Peden in the final by a couple of punches on the computer scoring system. I felt like I was a little bit hard done by it. And I think that's what prompted me to turn pro so young. That's why I turned pro at this sort of 19. Um, because I knew that the, the amateur scoring system didn't suit me, and I felt that I was sort of like, yeah, I felt that I was robbed of the, robbed of the gold medal there. Um, it, it was a close fight; Look, it could have gone either way. But I felt that at the time, you know, I was, I was robbed of the medal, and that's what, that's effectively what got me to turn pro. But what an experience, man, for a young kid walking around, walking around the track with the likes of Sally Gunnell, Linford Christie, all these athletes, and you're a 19 year old kid. Like, yeah, it was mad. Well, yeah, interesting. So, Victory Island, Canada, then, because um, I'm looking at the records here. Obviously, you're right, but um, yeah, the reason I said Victoria, Australia, is because that's what that's what's actually gone down in the in the books on on on, on box rec. But Victory Victory Island, Canada, uh, and, and you answered yeah. my question for me there as to as to how come you didn't then uh, have your eyes on Atlanta in 1996. But as you say, you you turned pro, and uh, the question that I was that I alluded to earlier on, it, it's about the about the ring walks, about the music, about the nickname, the omen. It, it's important when you turn pro to just get get a little bit of something going. Now you you were a well known yeah. fighter in your local area. Selling tickets was always going. To, it's a grind for, for anybody, but you could do it, and you knew you could do it. But for TV and for things like that, just just having that that little bit of something extra to take you to the next level, and that that can yeah. be a good nickname and, and some good music and a good ring walk. So where did that all come from? It was, you know, it was genius, really, because it was. That, you're right. That's exactly what it was. It was all about that marketability, that something that you know catches the, catches the imagination. Like when Nigel Ben come into the Big Ben charm, you know, when you heard it, like you remembered it, and people were like that's. So 
Obviously, my name was Oliver. Jess was trying to come up with a nickname for me because we was trying to work as a brand, as a product, to try and push me forward. And he come up with the omens. He said, yeah, you could come into the music and have the, an orchestra singing you in and we'll lift you up on a crane and you can do the red eyes and the little devil and the lovely guy outside the ring, little devil in, in the ring. He goes, but it, it works. And I was like, do you know what? That, that works for me. I'm well happy with that. So we'd come into the, like, the, the, the omen music for the first like a minute or so, and it would break into whatever song I, I had. Um, but yeah, it was just, that was just from a marketing point of view, if I'm honest, and I thought it was genius. I thought it worked. Like, people used to know me as the Omen, not as Spencer, not as Oliver. Omen, how are you getting on, Omen? That's what it was. It was it was very, very catchy. And um, yeah, like from, um, from a managerial point of view, I thought it was genius. Yeah, these things these things matter. They're really, really important, and and I remember it really, really well. I was I was a big fan. Um, I thought of because you think about that late nineties period as well, and and maybe it was the kind of thing that people were paying more attention to then than they had done previously because of Nassim, really. Yeah, um, definitely. And the kind of noise that he yeah. was creating. I think, I think maybe it was just a spell there where people were beginning to think more, more kind of pointedly about about image and and what it could what it could do for you um yeah okay well that that's we'll we'll we'll, we'll leave it there because we've taken up a fair bit of your time but but how's the last few weeks been anyway what have you what have you been up to you and jake have been cracking on with um the pound for pound podcast of course um yeah and yeah we- I, I think you found the technical side of it about as troublesome as me and macklin have at times but um what have you Absolutely. been up to listen andy what i've got to say is respect you guys for turning them out week in week out because it's not easy you know it's hard like you know on the technical side of things it's very difficult you know we're, we're in separate houses you get a guest on the phone as well so you can't see each other it's hard to sort of know when to speak when not to speak so yeah respect you guys are smashing them out every week doing a great job we've changed our one slightly as in we you know we've, we're getting the boxes on and we you know we've had the likes of robert smith on explaining what's going on in the world of boxing and all that, but we sort of um, we've been going down a slightly different route. We had Henry Fraser on this week, who was a guy who played rugby. I played his brother Will Fraser for a while. Will was played for Saracens full team. Henry was a was a great little rugby player who was in the academy. Went on holiday at seventeen. Dived dived into the sea, like walked into the sea. Then dived when he got up to about sort of knee high. He dived and dived straight into a sandbank. Got paralysed from the neck down. Um, as a 17-year-old kid. And what he does now, he does art now. He draws art with his mouth. And he's the most insane thing you've ever seen. But he's also a big boxing fan. talks about boxing a lot. But, yeah, we've just gone down these inspirational stories a little bit. So just mixing it up a little bit at the moment. But, it's um, yeah, great fun. Really enjoying it. We've had a couple of great actors on as well. That, um, um, that, um, yeah, that we've had on as well. Steve Graham, etc. And, yeah, it's, it's been fun, mate. We just playing around with different things until boxing gets up and running again. But, yeah, just to echo what I said, you guys are smashing it out of the park, man. You're doing a great job. Oh, thanks very much. It's, um, we've... Um, yeah, the, um, the, it's been ticklish at times. It's uh, We're aware as well, you know, every now and again, people have, have, have dropped me a line saying, oh, you know, is there nothing you can do with, with the sound and try this and try that and try the other? We, we are, you know, uh, we are... <laughs> trust me, we are, we are doing our best. Yeah. Um, but um, Listen, they've got to appreciate they're getting any sound at all at the moment, if I'm honest, because like, <laughs> I know what you guys are going through to try and get these shows out at the moment. And I, and I know how difficult it is. Our, our one that we've just done with Henry Fraser, the sound quality is not good at all. But what can we do? It's like, it is what it is. We're, we're churning them out and we're, we're hopefully keeping people entertained in this, in, in this tough time. But yeah, just trying to stay busy, guys, doing the podcast, doing a bit of talk sport, doing a bit of sky and going on the occasional... Mac, Mac, Macklin's Take podcast as well, which is great. <laughs> and I've got to say, my favourite saying these days is, it is what it is. <laughs> it is what it is, man, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and this Love is the it. kind of situation that's, that's made for that, really. So, Spence, we'll leave it there. Thanks very much for your time. It's been great fun, and we really hope to see you again soon. I think the last time we actually saw each other was in, in, um, in Saudi um, for what was a, yeah, it was a pretty unforgettable unforgettable week really because there's only been a couple of fight nights so what start of February in Sheffield yeah. then Manchester we were due to, to, to work together on the golden contract I know that um, a few yeah. days later and that was it was just before that that everything shut down so yes I hope it is um, listen 
I, I think that we the next time we might see each other, it's a great possibility it could be at a matching headquarters back garden, Old Barry Holmes' ex back garden, mate. That's a possibility. Don't, you know, so it might be sooner than people expect. Hopefully we see that, that, that them shows that Eddie's been talking about in the middle of July and running four consecutive shows weekly. Let's hope they can get that over the line and, and the guidelines are all right and the restrictions are all right and, and boxing gets back to um, where it was. Absolutely, absolutely. And you're right. I think the, the plans for that are, are exciting, they're interesting and they'll be planning for every kind of contingency. They'll be planning for it being as difficult as it can be without it being so difficult that it's not worth doing. Uh, that's what they have to do at the moment. But in a couple of months' time, things might, might not be as difficult as they as they first feared. We'll just have to wait and see. So, Spence, thanks very much. Matt, thanks very much. Um, everybody, thanks for listening as always. And if you do have time to, to get onto iTunes and, uh, and leave us a nice, kind review, that would be great. And we'll be back again soon. And old Lucy Brown Yes, that line falls on the right, babe Not that Maggie's Back in Podcast Network.